Hello, and welcome to the AMA Steps Forward podcast series. We'll hear from healthcare leaders nationwide about real-world solutions to the challenges that practices are confronting today. Solutions that help put the joy back into medicine. AMA Steps Forward program is open access and free to all at stepsforward.org. Hello, and thanks for joining this AMA Steps Forward podcast episode. My name is Dr. Kevin Hopkins. I'm a family medicine physician at Cleveland Clinic and a senior physician advisor here at the AMA. On today's podcast, I'm joined by our guest, Dr. Greg Wallingford, an emergency medicine physician by training. Dr. Wallingford is the Associate Program Director of the Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship at Dell Medical School at the University of Texas, Austin. He's also the Curriculum Director for Dell Medical School's Leadership Program. Thank you for being here today, Dr. Wallingford. We're glad to have you as a guest. Thanks, Dr. Hopkins. Excited to be here and excited to share what we've been doing in case it's helpful to others. Yeah, I'm really I'm really interested and excited about this conversation. The, the topic today that we're going to focus on is rapid supportive debriefing, which is a tool that's been created by, by you and your team to help support teams after stressful events, especially in a clinical setting like cardiopulmonary arrest and resuscitation. But before we dive into that, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Absolutely. So I am an emergency medicine trained, now palliative care doctor. And I think if there's any story behind that, it's that I really enjoy the connection with teams and patients and the opportunity to really delve into that more on the palliative medicine side. Ironically, I switched from emergency medicine to palliative medicine through an MBA where I learned some leadership skills around connection and communication that got me really excited. I think more importantly, at least to me, I'm a dad of two really young children who are now in daycare and getting us sick all the time. And I'm a well-being enthusiast, really dedicated to trying to bring everyday leadership skills to teams when they need them specifically in, in hard events or in difficult patient scenarios. Thanks, Greg. So that, that job of being a, a dad, it will be the toughest job you'll ever have. It's also the most rewarding job you'll ever have. So congratulations uh, on your family. That's wonderful. Knowing that, that you direct the Longitudinal Leadership Program there at Dell, help us make a, draw a connection between leadership skills and well-being. And then you know, how, does, how does this tool that we're going to unpack address both of those things? Yeah, so I'll take us a couple steps further back just to give a one sentence of where I felt like these were when I was in medical school 10 years ago. I always heard that the job of the doctor was to take care of the patients and not necessarily yourself. Our goal was really to provide the best patient care completely selflessly. And I think over time, what I've realized is that if we don't take care of ourselves or our teams, we actually don't provide high quality care. And so there's also been this concurrent thread, and I think the AMA podcast recently touched on this, about how leadership skills and really everyday leadership skills, so like how we talk and connect with others, how we respond to hard things, how we give feedback, those are the types of skills that have an outsized impact on our well-being. And if I take a step back too to medical school, at the time there was really little to no leadership training baked into the curriculum that we all took part of. And so one of the things that I'm really excited about here at Dell Medical School is the intentional longitudinal effort to bring leadership skills training to students 
so that when they're leaders very soon, you know, as soon as being a resident, you're leading at least the medical students. I'm excited that those skills and trainings are going to be part of their future careers as physicians. And I think that will be helpful to them, to their teams, but I think also their organizations and their career longevity. So when I think about the intervention today, uh, rapid supportive debriefing, I see that intervention as an everyday leadership skill that helps support teams during stressful or hard events. Because this, the, the components of debriefing for support are really applicable in a lot of scenarios. It started really in codes because they're discrete. They're very easy to say, aha, that code happened. Let's debrief it with this specific tool. But I think one of the cool things about it and speaking to leadership skills is that we found that when we train people on how to debrief codes to support teams, they used a lot of the same skills outside of codes. So they use some of the parts of the debrief after a difficult patient interaction, after a medical mistake, after a really tough diagnosis. Um, and so I think it uh, kind of just speaks again to the, the need for this type of skill training because it's found a home in codes initially, but it's really spread a bit, which has been exciting to watch. So it just kind of took me back to my, to my training more than 20 years ago, now almost 25 years ago. And there wasn't much sort of leadership training and education peppered in there. And that, although when you think about it, physicians by nature, just by virtue of their role within a practice or health system are leaders, whether they have a title or not. Right. And so it's important for us to think about how we think, how we conduct ourselves, how we ask questions, and then specifically around the sort of traumatic or hard events. We, we all probably have those experiences every day, like you said, whether it's a, a difficult diagnosis or tough conversation with a colleague, um, you know, even a crucial conversation with our children, um, that, that they can be difficult experiences. So how we unpack that and think about it afterwards it's helpful to have a sort of a, for, a structured format for that. And thinking about your training and background, did any of that exist when you were going through medical school? Like after your your first involvement with a code or a bad patient outcome, did anybody come up to you and say, what was that like for you and, and help to debrief that? So funny you ask, because I was reflecting this morning on my first code, and what I remember of it was it was a patient who was clearly not going to survive the code, even from a medical student perspective. And when we walked out of it, I still remember our senior resident saying something like, what a waste of time. And that's, I mean, that those few words stuck with me for quite a while. And so you know, when I look back, I sort of looked to my colleagues, like peers, like other medical students, or maybe even junior residents to informally debrief. But I felt like I had to explore whether that was even allowed um, in the culture. And thankfully, some people did a really good job of doing that debrief, um, but it didn't happen in a structured way. And it certainly didn't happen from the level of the attending or senior resident. And so actually, interestingly, when we started this intervention, I interviewed about 30 or 40 residents informally. And what they told me was that after a code, quote, we saw it, and then everyone silently walked away. And the follow-up to that was that people really wanted to step into that space. And they really did want to support their team, and they knew it was an important time to do that but the language and words were hard. 
it felt like, gosh, what if I open a can of worms and someone's like really, really upset? Or what if I say something wrong and make myself look, you know, either detached or maybe perhaps overly emotional or unable to care for the next patient? And so, you know, the the debrief that this supportive debrief has some structured language that's meant to lower that barrier so that people who want to step into this leadership role, this everyday leadership role can do it by reading off the back of a badge if they want. I mean, I think as people you know, get more skilled with it, they, they can adapt the language to something that's very authentic to them. And so they don't have to follow it exactly, but the format lowers that barrier to entry. Yeah. The, I, I've thought many times over the years about the first code situation that I was involved in in the hospital as a, as a third year medical student in my medicine clerkship on an inpatient team, I believe in 2000. Yeah, probably 2000. And my resident and I were sort of the first ones into the hospital room. And I ended up doing chest compressions and, you know, feeling ribs break under the palms of my hands. You know, the patient obviously unresponsive, not breathing, eyes open, look fixed. Like, I mean, I knew it wasn't going to go well, and, and certainly it didn't go well for that patient. But I remember walking out of there feeling just numb and like, what did, what just happened? What was I just a part of? And sort of like your experience with your resident, like some people do say the wrong things <laughs> and yet most of us are afraid of saying the wrong things. So we say nothing. So the, the usual, how it goes is, is everybody just sort of walks away in silence and then goes on with the next thing. And it's really hard to compartmentalize like that and really go on and be effective and focused on the next thing, the next patient, really, before you've unpacked and processed what happened with this this previous patient. And so much of being having a career in medicine is about relationship. I mentioned I'm a primary care physician, family medicine physician. So much of what I love and enjoy about my work is about relationships with my friends and colleagues and with, with my patients. These are real people that we're taking care of, not a, not a collection of disease processes, acute and chronic. And so uh, how do you think that, that that atmosphere or that culture of how we've treated these difficult situations historically has potentially contributed to dehumanization or a, a disconnect in relationships in healthcare? You know, great question. It touches on some of the stuff that we thought about when we designed this debrief. So I think, um, Speaking to the, what if we don't say anything because we're afraid to say the wrong thing? I think that that empty space allows us to tell ourselves whatever story makes most sense to us. And I think as perfectionists by nature, often in medicine, those stories are not necessarily the kind ones. There are things like, I guess I'm not strong enough. I guess I'm the only person who's feeling this way because when you look around, people don't necessarily tend to show that emotion. I think what that leads to is this disconnect between who we want to be and what we are becoming. I think that tension creates emotional exhaustion in and of itself, that you're trying to act like something that you don't really feel on the inside. To put another frame on it, like educational frame, I think there's this hidden culture that we're absorbing. And one of the parts of that hidden culture may be, after these hard things, I have to be tough and invincible and not show it. And I think that, you know, without doing that, it's hard to connect if we're trying to mute our emotions all the time. And I think our patients, like you said, need our relationship with them. But we also need that relationship with them, too, because that's what it infuses our work with meaning in many ways. 
and with our colleagues, right? And so if we're afraid to talk about the hard things with our colleagues because of, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be acting that way, like feeling these things, I feel like there's also this missed opportunity to create deep connection. I think Brene Brown speaks to vulnerability as one of the you know, core components of connecting with another human being. And I think um, hopefully, you know, a place like this that feels safe to say, I'm feeling numb, Kevin, allows a vulnerability that then sparks the connection. And that connection is what we need to do great work. Yes, you're right. Connection is so vitally important to bringing bringing meaning and and joy back to our work in the practice of medicine. Could you maybe walk us through what the rapid supportive debrief tool looks like and and how to how does that work in in practice? Yeah, so I'll take you back to the beginning just to understand where this whole thing came from. I was emergency medicine trained. I walked into fellowship on July 1 in Texas when COVID was surging for the first time. And there was this ask out there of twofold. One, can we help train our residents in code skills? Um, I had been in the ER, and so I stepped into that role. And the second was, and we're having a lot more of these than usual. Is there something we can also do to support them? And so just, you know, fortuitous timing, basically, I was doing palliative care fellowship focused on communication. I had done emergency medicine training focused on these skills. I had all this time with these residents to pilot these quick activities around codes. Sounds like what better person to address this problem than you, right? It was real, yeah, it was a really lucky timing. Um, and I feel really fortunate to have been involved at that point. And it was an exciting project for me. So I looked into some of the literature and found that structured debriefs and structured language, speaking to what we had said earlier, are often more effective than just like giving a very general framework for people to use, especially when words are hard in a situation like this. So what we did is we piloted a bunch of this language and then we put it on a badge. So the badge was then distributed to all the residents and at the same time, all the attendings in hospital medicine and in um, pulmonary and critical care. And the hope was that the code happens and then people have this opportunity to ask for this debrief that's not operational. So meaning a lot of times the debriefs happen and they're like, what went well? You know, what could have been better? What led to this issue? Why were the chest compressions not, you know, at 100 beats a minute, et cetera? They could ask for this other complementary, not replacement debrief around support. And so the idea was that happens, they have this opportunity, and if they want to, they can just look at the back of their badge. It's, you know, with them, easily available. And I can read out the debrief. It's very quick. There's three components. The first is honoring the team. So thanks for your heroic efforts caring for this patient. Would anyone like to recognize our team for something that went well? Second is honoring the patient. So taking care of sick patients is hard. It's also an honor. Let's take 30 seconds to honor... Greg as a patient. Is there anything about this patient as a person that anyone would like to share? Third, acknowledge emotions. Codes are tough and there's no right way to feel. Kevin, would you like to share how you're feeling in a word or a phrase? And then the last part is just a wrap-up conclusion sentence. Thanks for taking the time as a team to connect with the human side of our work and support each other. So, you know, reading that out, Maybe it took, let's say, a minute, but each of the activities were chosen to to be very discreet. So meaning like when we ask, you know, share how you're feeling in a word or a phrase, it's not to devalidate or like cut short, but it's to rather make sure that this is a feasible thing to do in the flow of everyday work 
and not this big added, you know, 30, 40 minute, let's say debrief, because the hope is that this filled a space that was already wanted, but doesn't burden the, the rest of the day. And so how, how long do these typically last? I know you said, it, it, I mean, it takes just a few seconds to, to read those from the reality of a, a team of, I don't know how many might be participating in this debrief. What kind of time does it take and, and how, what have you seen as far as people's engagement? So in the data that we collected after rolling this out, a little over 75% of the debriefs lasted 10 minutes or less. With the vast majority, these were estimates, by the way, lasting between six and 10 minutes. None lasted more than 15. I would say generally the expectation would be somewhere in the range of like six to 10 minutes. In terms of engagement, we were actually really pleasantly surprised. Basically, the way this happened is we piloted it in these code sessions and residents were like, gosh, we want to, how can we do this? How can we get a copy of this? And at the same time, I think the hospital medicine team was asking for ways to support their residents too. Because you can imagine perhaps being a, you know, an intern showing up here in COVID, not being able to connect with others outside the hospital, not being able to connect in the same ways inside the hospital, and then going through a lot of hard stuff together, which is a really a great opportunity to build teamwork and to build support systems. But I think, again, it was a hard time to do that. In terms of a likelihood to recommend scale in the people that we interviewed, the overall likelihood to recommend was about a nine out of 10. So people generally felt that it was quite helpful and that they would recommend it to a colleague. Okay. I heard you mention badge tags or badge backers. My organization uses that for various tools too, because so you, you always have it with you. How did the education and training process go for for, for physicians and residents, what did that look like on training and education for how to use the, the rapid supportive debrief process? So we really tried to be thoughtful in terms of trying to coordinate timing where we could roll it out between the residents, fellows, and attendings, like all in very quick succession. Because what we didn't want to happen was that the residents got the training, but the attendings weren't really sure what they were being asked to do or vice versa. The attendings were excited to use it, but the residents didn't know exactly what it was. And so what we did is we did a noon conference and then very shortly thereafter, I think like two days later, presented to hospital medicine. And then that day distributed these tags. So both parties had heard about it in a one hour virtual at the time, most of the didactic teaching was virtual setting and then got the badge tags very quickly thereafter. And so the hope was to build a little momentum and see that, see what happened. Very quickly, the students actually were interested and asked about it. And so the ask became, hey, can you teach this to rotating students? That's a different process because residents you can train once and they have it for three years. But students, it's like every eight weeks they turn over because they're moving on to their next rotation. So what we actually did is implement it into the curriculum for the internal medicine clerkship, first as a pilot, and then students felt that it was really valuable, I think. And um, it's become like a standing part of all the internal medicine rotators. And the other thing I'll say that we found really important in implementation was I started being like being the person to talk about the rapid supportive debrief. But I think it's really important to give ownership to the people that are using it, that are colleagues that don't necessarily have a connection to being the one to create it. So the chief residents last year, for example, gave the training to the residents and I supplied, um, you know, the slides and some of the training to them. You know, 
the students one time, actually, I wasn't able to make a session. And so one of the students from the third year stepped in to teach the second year students about this. And so I think, you know, the visibility to not just from Greg, the creator, but from peers has been important too, to, I think, apply some positive peer pressure that like, hey, I did this and it worked and I'm not really connected with the rapid support of debrief research. It was timing and then trying to reach across residents and attendings, adding students on later and then giving ownership of ongoing training in some way to or at least co-ownership to excited, enthusiastic parties um, that are more peer to the people we're teaching. Mm-hmm. I heard you say that maybe at the end of a code situation, there, somebody asks the question, does anybody want to do a debrief? Is that how it happens just organically like that? And how is it determined who then takes the leadership of the discussion? So it's been really interesting. So we didn't really provide direct guidance on that. I think it's mostly been initiated by an ask, an organic ask. Like, gosh, it seems like maybe we should debrief this. And then who leads the code has varied wildly depending on the audience and place and time. So I would say like, I've heard once or twice of a student leading these debriefs because they felt the most ownership of the patient and felt like it was something that would be therapeutic to them. Often I think it's the senior resident or the attending though who leads the debrief. And I think debriefs and the way I've sort of pitched this uh, out there in the world is that the debriefs don't necessarily need to be like these really big formal, you know, 20 person meetings if that doesn't feel right. Maybe for the medical student who really needs it, what they need is to debrief with a peer back in the team room or schedule time for coffee, you know, in half an hour so that they can go talk about this. But again, having that tool and framework helps that conversation flow in a way that hopefully that doesn't feel like super uh, sticky in terms of, oh, I might say the wrong thing. And is this, is this something that nurses and techs and uh, that everybody participates in, certainly if they wish? Yeah. Most of the time, I would say nurses, techs, respiratory therapists are invited. And I, in the debriefs that I've been in, most of the time, at least some, if not all of them attend. There's a team climate or team culture aspect of this too that I, I hope inclusion is part of. Yeah. There's, there's very few things that will galvanize relationships among peers and colleagues and coworkers more than a traumatic experience or uh, a, a difficult experience. And so I can imagine that having the ability to at least briefly discuss it afterwards actually helps in those types of relationships and, and building teams for the long haul. So you walked through the steps that honoring the team, honoring the patient, acknowledge emotions, and then the wrap up or conclusion. I particularly love that second and those second and third steps, the, the honoring the patient, you know, referencing them by name. What did somebody know about this person that maybe the rest of us didn't know? What were their relationships like? Who came to visit? Those types of things. And then acknowledging the emotions, that it's okay to feel emotional about this. It, it may be, in fact, a sad experience, uh, certainly if it's unexpected or sudden uh, bad outcome, those types of things. So I love that you that you acknowledge those things specifically how how has this tool or, or the structure had a most its most significant impact on care teams or individuals? What have they found to be the most helpful or the most impactful, maybe? 
Yeah, so that's that's something we've been looking into with some of our qualitative research. I would I would bucket into a few themes. One is connection with team, and I would say like baked into that is also a reduction in hierarchy. So for example, if if I were to lead the debrief and say, gosh, this patient is really meaningful to me because X, and I'm feeling kind of numb about this. I think it normalizes or at least legitimizes the fact that emotions are part of this work and okay in this space. And I think in and of itself, that takes away some of the self-doubt. Secondly, I think that there's an increase in psychological safety. We didn't measure it directly, though we did ask a survey question, comfort asking team members for help. And there was, uh, at least in our preliminary analysis, a statistically significant increase in comfort asking team members for help. And I think, again, that speaks to something bigger, which is that when we're on a team, we want to be able to lean on each other and that having these conversations enables us to feel comfortable doing that. Lastly, I think the, and you spoke to this earlier, Kevin, there's this very challenging transition. So you go, you run this code, the room's a mess afterwards, 90, you know, 90 plus percent of the time. And now you want to, with good intent, walk out of that room and take great care of the patient next door who maybe is totally stable. And that transition's hard for any of us, I think. But this ability to pause and acknowledge, even if it's five minutes, I think many have spoken to the fact that they can go on working their day and feeling meaning in the rest of their work better because they took a moment to pause and acknowledge rather than try to uh, kind of suppress and move on. Again, I don't want that to feel like a negative thing because I think we do it with the good intention of the next patient next door needs me and so I need to let this go. But again, speaking to the bigger well-being theme that how we feel affects how we care for patients. And so if we feel a little bit more closure and we find meaning in something hard that just happened, I think we can bring that to our next room. If we feel instead shocked and perhaps questioning things, we bring those, that cognitive load with us to the next patient room. Yeah, especially when, when it is an emotional response. Actually, I, I want to be emotionally connected to my patients and my patients want to be emotionally connected to me. And, and to have a relationship, even if it's brief and relatively superficial, I'm thinking if, if I'm in one of, these, one of these debriefs afterwards and thinking about honoring the patient, what is something that somebody knew about this patient? If I didn't know anything about them and they were mine, I'm probably going to ask some questions of the next patient I interact with because I'm going to want to know them a little more personally. And that can encourage me to take better care of patients uh, going forward. So I think there's a lot to be learned from it. Just I think one final question I had for you. We touched on this a little bit in the opening, but this the process and the format was was really created for the ability to in the moment rapidly debrief by giving support uh, after a a code or a traumatic event. Are there other situations and circumstances to which this tool has already been applied formally or or even hypothetically, theoretically, and like I said, I know we talked about this a little bit earlier on, but how else could you see this being used or has it been used amongst your team? So I think the components of the tool are the ones that get used in other spaces frequently because they're skills. So like acknowledging emotions, let's say, if you go and the patient yells at you for something that maybe was your fault, maybe was not, and you're feeling confused about it, I think that this type of skill saying, gosh, Kevin, that was a really tough encounter. Do you want to talk about it? How are you doing? 
that language and um, skill around naming, for example, could show up in any difficult encounter with a patient. I've heard it also in medical mistakes that teams are there to support each other using things like gratitude even at the end. So like, thank you for being here to talk about this with me. Even if we can't fix what just happened, I'm really grateful for just being given the opportunity to connect over something hard. And so we haven't formally applied it to other things, but we actually found is about 50% of these debriefs that people were reporting weren't actually necessarily code situations. And they varied widely in, in terms of like what they were, which again, I think is totally unexpected and really cool and encouraging, at least from my perspective, that these fundamental communication skills that are really leadership skills are being used to support teams in places that we didn't even intend them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in places and situations where we could all use a little more support. Thank you uh, so much for this. Any any final thoughts or things that maybe I didn't ask you that didn't come up organically in our conversation that you would like to make sure you share with our audience? Yeah, so I think stepping back to big picture framing, I think it's really key that we continue to train our future physicians in leadership behaviors because those behaviors are ultimately what drive many aspects of well-being. And I think well-being is a patient care issue. So we used to, again, think about it as an issue of taking care of ourselves, but it is also an issue of taking care of our patients. And organizations are also seeing it as an organizational efficiency issue because people who are not burnt out are more willing to learn, to stretch into new things, to take on a new initiative, and are less likely to leave. And so I think as time goes along, I think the the connection between leadership and well-being hopefully will continue to grow. Um, and I hope that the focus for most of our physicians who go out there and practice is on the fundamental high leverage, low cost skill of communicating well with their team. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Greg Wallingford from Dell Medical School at the University of Texas, Austin for being our guest today, speaking about rapid supportive debriefing. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. Be sure to join us next week for the next episode of the AMA Steps Forward podcast series. Thank you for listening to this episode from the AMA Steps Forward podcast series. AMA Steps Forward program is open access and free to all at stepsforward.org. Steps Forward can help put the joy back into medicine by offering real-world solutions to the challenges that your practice is confronting today. We look forward to you joining us next time on the AMA Steps Forward podcast series, stepsforward.org.